This episode is brought to you by Fully Gemstones. The Diamond Diadem and Queen Mary's Girls of Great Britain and Ireland tiara. I mean, those are the, the ones that we really recognise. Yeah, even without realising, you know, we hold, we have them in our purse and in our pocket and we put stamps on letters and we don't probably, most people probably don't even think about it, but there, there they are and there these jewels will be for everyone to see. And they're both, I think they're just such fascinating jewels. I feel like I could talk about the diamond diadem literally all day. Welcome to If Jewels Could Talk. I'm Carol Walton, the voice of jewellery an author, broadcaster, and the woman who initiated the role of jewellery editor at magazines like Tatler and British Vogue. This is a podcast for everyone, for people who do like jewellery, for people who don't realise they like jewellery, and anyone intrigued by fascinating facts, new ideas, and forgotten histories. So please join me as I tell sparkly tales, meeting all sorts of people, delving into four centuries of jewellery culture, and investigate what's happening now. This is Platinum Jubilee year for Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. For anyone listening outside the UK, what this means is that the whole nation is celebrating her 70th year on the throne. And we're here today to talk about Her Majesty's jewels that are going to be exhibited this summer at Windsor Castle and Buckingham Palace. Now, it's quite hard to talk about someone's life through their jewellery when there's quite so much of it. But we're very lucky to have here with us today art historian and curator Caroline de Guito, who is the Deputy Surveyor of the Queen's Works of Arts, responsible for 700,000 works of art and jewels, at 13 royal palaces, including Her Majesty's official residences, Buckingham Palace and Windsor Castle. And Caroline is responsible for the jewels in the exhibition and probably knows more about the jewellery than the royal family themselves because she's had 30 years' experience in writing books and curating the royal collection. And she is going to give us a preview of the jewels on show this summer, their history and their personal relationship with the Queen. Caroline, thank you very much for joining us. Carol, it's such a pleasure to be with you. I'm really excited to have this conversation. So... First thing, how did you select the jewels that are going to be shown? Well, it's an interesting question. It's really a mixture of things, actually. Um, But guided, I think, primarily by the the themes of the displays that we are putting together. And so we have three displays which will be mounted at Buckingham Palace, Windsor Castle, and also at the Palace of Holyrood House in Edinburgh, the Queen's official residence in Scotland. And they will be on this summer for our visitors to see. And in London, we're we're really focusing on right at the beginning, the very beginning of the Queen's reign, so her accession, 1952. So we're going way, way, way back across the seven decades. And what has really informed that selection of jewels is the um, photographs that we're going to be displaying alongside them. So the photographs kind of take the lead. And these were the first ever official portraits of Her Majesty the Queen taken just 
a few weeks after the death of her father and therefore her accession. And they were taken by a, a leading female photographer called Dorothy Wilding. And the Queen posed in a variety of, of different outfits and, of course, with accompanying jewels. And it will be those jewels that visitors will see at Buckingham Palace. So that, that's the kind of reasoning behind that selection. And then in Windsor, um, we're going to be looking at the coronation, another, of course, incredibly historic moment, probably the most historic moment in the Queen's reign, and something that, well, I'm not quite old enough to remember, but many people in this country are still alive, remember that. And of course, it was such a historic and magnificent day in our nation's history. And there we are using the coronation dress which, as you know, is embroidered with wonderful emblems. Um, by Norman Hartnell. By Norman Hartnell and his wonderful Couture House. And we're using that as the sort of guiding principle to inform the selection of jewels alongside pieces actually worn by Her Majesty on, on the day of her coronation. I see. When I looked at the list, I thought I wondered if there were... The ones you'd chosen told the history of her reign or the ones that she felt quite emotionally attached to. Luckily enough, what you see in that selection, having said the, the sort of criteria in the background for you know making those specific selections, actually what we end up with across those two displays are pieces which, of course, are very frequently worn by the Queen, pieces that you know, one imagines that she is particularly fond of, but pieces that have that great historic significance, whether just because of their, you know, special nature as royal jewels, and um, some of them, of course, date back much earlier than her reign, but also significance in her own life. So I think that's a kind of combination of things, actually. And did she approve the final list? Yes, absolutely. And she could do without those particular jewels well, for a little bit. It's incredibly <laughs> generous of Her Majesty. And we're always very, very grateful when she allows us to display these pieces, which is, you know, it's quite rare. And it's, it's very special to be able to do so. So inevitably, we're enormously grateful for her generosity. And I thought the earliest one in her in her life seemed to be the... Princess Elizabeth's coronet that she wore to her own parents' coronation. Yes. King and George VI and Queen Elizabeth. That's right, in, in May 1937. So again, going right back. And it's such a sort of simple object. It's something, you know, it's a princess's coronet. It was made by Garrard and Co. And it's very humble. I mean, it's made of gilt metal. There are no stones. It's um, it's sort of embossed with um, repoussé um, relief shapes, which replicate the, the you know gemstones that would have otherwise appeared on something more grand. And it's of course made in in miniature to fit her head um, as an eleven year old child. And she uh, of course looked resplendent at the coronation. Of course, accompanied by her younger sister, Princess Margaret, who wore, again, an even smaller version of the coronet and the, the beautiful lace and golden embellished dress and matching miniature coronation robes. And I think what's sort of significant about the piece, and in spite of the fact that it's, you know, very humble, is it just marks, in a sense, that moment when, obviously, with her King George VI accession, after the abdication of his elder brother, the Queen, well, Princess Elizabeth, as she was then, became heir presumptive. And that was quite a sort of defining moment, if you like, in her life. And actually looking at the pictures of that, the photographs, it almost looks like she's a miniature version of her mother, kind of in waiting just to put on that more important crown in due course. Absolutely. Well, of course, she, you know, had no idea when that was going to happen. Mm. And of course, sadly, it happened a lot 
sooner than anyone had imagined uh, would be the case. But I think you're right. It's that wonderful, the the beautiful portrait also incidentally taken by Dorothy Wilding, who was commissioned to take those official portraits of George VI and Queen Elizabeth on Coronation Day. There's that lovely image of of the four of them, the family resplendent in their coronation Mm -hmm. outfits and such... Yeah, very kind of poignant in a way, actually. I thought, actually, one of the most poignant for me was the um, lily brooch. The flame lily. The flame lily. Mm, Yeah, it's such a beautiful piece. And, of course, talking about that moment of Princess Elizabeth becoming queen, um, that was, as, as as you're obviously alluding to, that was worn by Princess Elizabeth on her morning clothes as she stepped off the aircraft, having, of course, had to return suddenly, unexpectedly, from her tour. At that moment, of course, she had already become queen because her father had died. And it was interesting that she wore that piece, but I suppose because she was already in Africa, Rhodesia, it was appropriate to take with her on that tour. But it it does have that extra Mm. poignancy, I suppose. It's a very youthful piece as well that befitted a young woman... Absolutely. Um, But I guess it's the first jewel as a nation people saw her wear as the new queen. Absolutely. So it has that kind of double, Mm. double sort of importance. And it had obviously originally been given to her as a 21st birthday present on that tour with her parents, um, which lasted from February to April 1947, one of those very long tours, not quite as long as the Queen's own coronation tour after her in 1953-4, but it was given to her then as a 21st birthday present. So I think it has that real sort of importance in her early life. And then you've got two of the tiaras that are arguably most closely associated with her reign, the ones you see on her head on coinage, banknotes, postage stamps, the diamond um, diadem and Queen Mary's Girls of Great Britain and Ireland tiara. I mean, those are the the ones that we really recognise. Yeah, they're so familiar, aren't they? I mean, we, even without realising, you know, we hold, we have them in our our purse and in our pocket and we put stamps on letters and we don't probably most people probably don't even think about it but there, there they are and there these jewels will be for everyone to see and they both have sort of really interesting histories actually as you know I think they're just such fascinating jewels I feel like I could talk about the diamond diadem literally all day which obviously I won't because that would probably get rather boring for your for your listeners but um no they're jewelry people they're super happy <laughs> the diadem is just fabulous isn't it isn't it it's just such a wonderful jewel but I think what's in many ways surprising about it is that we think of it very much as as you say associated with the queen and we you know worn on such important occasions and it it feels sort of feminine therefore I think we identify it as a feminine jewel but it was made for a man Mm. it was made for George IV it was designed as you know originally for George IV's coronation um, which was supposed to have taken place in 1820 but it all had to be postponed because of um, Caroline of Brunswick, his estranged wife, had come back and there was the trial and all the, the proceedings taking place. So it was a very t- sort of stressful, difficult time. But nonetheless, George IV being George IV and obviously hugely flamboyant, great lover of jewels, actually. And I think that's quite interesting from the, the sort of male perspective, um, had commissioned this extraordinary range of paraphernalia for his coronation. And, uh, of course, the crown jewellers at that time, Rundle, Bridget and Rundle, um, who were, you know, must have been rubbing their hands together with glee at the amount of material that was required by the king. And, and, and of course, we ended up with this, with this beautiful diadem, which 
uh, was designed, we think it was designed by Philip Liebart, who was the leading designer working for Rundles at that time. And as you know, it's a combination of brilliant uh, cut diamonds with those beautiful two rows of pearls around the band, enclosing this sort of waving line of, of diamonds. And then above, something completely different that no one had ever really seen before in such a regal piece of um, jewellery. And that is that between those traditional crosses, patties, so the cross-shape elements that we normally associate with a crown or a crown-like, you know, sort of regal circlet, instead of being interspersed with fleur-de-lis, we actually have something completely new, which is these four um, patriotic devices. And they're made up of, of shamrocks, of thistles and of roses. So obviously the emblems of, of Ireland, Scotland and England. And so I think by doing that, what George IV was trying to the sort of message he was giving out was reinforcing the Act of Union of 1800, which of course unified the United mm. Kingdom. And he just didn't want the fleur de lis. I think the sort of anti-French feeling sort of came into that. So this was something really new. And those devices are set, they're open back settings. So it's quite modern in that sense. And it gives this wonderful kind of lightness, I think, to that, to that circlet. And after all that trouble, 1,333 diamonds, 169 pearls, setting the jewel cost £290. And then the diamonds were actually loaned and they were charged, Rundles charged the king £800 for the loan of the diamonds. And it was quite normal at that time for diamonds to be hired for coronations because obviously the you know, number of stones required was beyond even the wealth of the sovereign. And after all of that... The king wore such an enormous hat with huge ostrich feathers that it was virtually impossible to see the diadem on the journey from Westminster Hall to Westminster Abbey. Of course, we've had the opportunity to see... Did people see it when he emerged? Well, I don't, I don't really know if history relates. I think that there's just this... The, I mean, the, the visual representations of the procession, there's wonderful works in the print room at Windsor Castle, part of the Royal Collection, showing that huge coronation procession, procession. And all you can see is the king resplendent in his robes and then this enormous hat and feathers. And, you know, you need a sort of microscope to see the, mm. see the diadem. But he obviously liked it because he decided to keep it. And then it was worn by Queen Adelaide, consort of William IV, and then ultimately inherited by Queen Victoria in 1837. And it's then, you know, been passed down generation to generation as a sort of heirloom jewel through, through the family. And actually thinking about the postage stamp thing with Her Majesty the Queen, actually Queen Victoria on the penny black stamp is depicted wearing the diadem. So there was a sort of precedent for that. So the alterations would take place but never actually alter the diadem? No, the diadem mm. itself has been very little changed. I mean, I think just resizing probably of the band, obviously, to suit mm. different head shapes over the generations. But as a jewel, um, you know, the diamonds were kept. Obviously, I talked about the higher of the diamonds. They were kept and it has remained as was. So it was really from Queen Victoria that there was no more loaning of diamonds because there didn't need to be no, I mean, I think for um, coronations, obviously, um, there were certain new jewels produced for Queen Victoria's coronation, such as her coronation ring, because obviously she was the first female sovereign for quite a long time. And um, there, there wasn't an appropriate size ring, so she, a coronation ring was made for her. And with the crown jewels, obviously, there are, you know, things change and, and, and are altered accordingly to, you know, 
to suit the, and fit the sovereign, most importantly. Um, but the diadem itself has remained mm. almost intact. But she had so many stones from South Africa, from India. So they, after the Hanoverians, they didn't need to rent anymore, did they? No, they had no exactly. There were, there were mm. lots of, of, obviously, these sort of tributes of empire, shall we say, mm. and stones coming in to possession. And, and Queen Victoria, you know, like many other subsequent sovereigns, particularly someone like Queen Mary, who no doubt we'll talk about in a bit, had, you know, no qualms and it was perfectly legitimate for her to want to change jewels, which she often did, as you know. I mean, after the Hanoverian stones had to go back to the King of Hanover, um, her cousin, you know, from Queen Charlotte's treasury. So that's when a lot of Queen Charlotte's jewels were sort of broken up and went. Queen Victoria had to replace a lot of things. So she would take stones from garter badges and from hilts of swords and and that's all recorded of course in the in the ledgers and in her inventory of jewels so there was a lot of recycling and upcycling and reuse of stones and that still happens not really so much today i think there are a few examples in her majesty's reign where she's had obviously new pieces made or she's adapted pieces that perhaps she's been given or inherited just to suit her and i think the other element probably there is that fashion comes into play, you know, changing fashions. And, and we definitely see elements of that, particularly with something like the Girls of Great Britain and Ireland tiara, which you mentioned a few minutes mm. ago. Mm. In fact, the Queen's collection hasn't changed that much, has it, according to fashion in the last 70 years? No, I don't. I mean, obviously, there are pieces which are more of their era. Thing, I'm thinking of things that were presented at the beginning of her reign and all things that were given to her as a young woman. She made changes to her 21st birthday diamonds, you know, given by the government and people of South Africa. Um, so she was prepared, I suppose, at that point to alter things to suit her requirements. Mm. But I think that's happened much less, as you say, in the light during the seven decades of the Queen's reign. Do you think that's partly because she feels that they are for regal public display and therefore people get used to seeing them in the incarnation they are in and that's very important as a message of stability? Yeah, I think there is is something in that. But I also think that there's a, a great recognition of the history of many of the pieces that she's inherited, even if that's from her mother, Queen Elizabeth, so relative things that have come into mm-hmm. personal ownership relatively, you know, in relatively recent times, but certainly with things that have more historic, you know, associations, things that belong to Queen Victoria or, or beyond. I think there's always been a, um, a desire to retain the integrity of those jewels. And then also, I think that the other element is just thinking about um, pieces that Her Majesty has been presented with during her reign, particularly um, some of those emblematic jewels that are emblems of countries and, and things like that, and the thought that goes into the wearing of those and making sure that they're worn on those appropriate occasions and taken on tour, you know, back in the in the days when Her Majesty used to travel so much. And I want to ask you something that I'm always intrigued by, and you can never quite find the answer to this in however many books are written. How many tiaras are there? <laughs> I wish I could answer the question, but I actually don't know. I'm sure that it's possible to do a sort of mathematical calculation. And there are so many people out there who really watch this kind of thing. And it's, I'm always sort of fascinated by that, that interest and sort of intrigue almost into 
things like how many tiaras. But I don't actually know. So that's hugely disappointing. I'm how sorry. I'm sorry to let you down, Carol. But I, I don't. <laughs> and the Susie Menkes in her definitive book mm. Royal Jewels mm. said there are eleven tiaras frequently worn and a dozen more in store. Yeah. I, I mean, I I just don't know quite where that number comes from. I mean, I think during the Queen's reign, we've obviously. Seen Her Majesty wear you know a whole range of different tiaras, but equally it's well known that there are others that she doesn't or hasn't particularly worn. Certainly not in public. Of course, we don't you know we have we don't know for sure in private. But I think perhaps if you look at it from the other angle, it's sort of perhaps tempting to think well maybe those ones that we do see frequently are the ones that are comfortable to wear that you know Her Majesty feels are appropriate and. You know, the ones that perhaps she just likes. There was a very sweet quote in Chips Cannon's diaries, um, which has just been um, re-edited and republished. And he said that at, at one party in Scotland, I think it was, he said, she turned around and said to him, one can't really dance in a tiara. <laughs> but you kind of imagine that the Queen could do anything in a tiara. She looks so comfortable I in know. Well, there's, I suppose there's, you know, uh, the Queen's had quite a lot of practice. Yeah, I think certain tiaras are more comfortable than others, I'm sure. And when we, you, you know, one thinks of the scale, some of them are really, you know, quite big. Others are much lighter. And again, it all comes down to fashion and, and you know, the sort of innovations of jewellery and changing materials, platinum and, and all that kind of thing coming into play. Um, her sister, Princess Margaret, always said she's the only person in the world who can put on a tiara running down the stairs. Mm, I think there's definitely probably a skill set there that um, mm. yeah, has Practice. been honed over, yeah, over these, <laughs> these many years. <laughs> so at Windsor and Buckingham Palace, it was really the division around the imagery and the dress. Yes, exactly. And so the coronation necklace would automatically go to Windsor because that was worn with the Norman Hartnell. That's right. Beautiful gown. Yes, yes. That was hand-stitched with all the floral motifs from shamrocks and... Daffodils. Well, not daffodils, actually. Not daffodils. Leaks. 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 Leaks which is, from yes, Wales. And Hartnell particularly refers to how the, the Earl Marshal, who's obviously in charge of coordinating and organising the coronation, was most you know, um, specific about the leaks and that how he had to go off and send his team to research, you know, leaks. And, but he made them look very beautiful, actually, <laughs> sprinkled with crystals on the, on the coronation dress. So they, they don't really look like, well, they do look like leaks, but they're beautiful leaks. Coronation yes. leaks. Coronation <laughs> leaks, absolutely. Um, um, but that, that vision, that there's that uh, moving image of her at the coronation with her maids of honour and all you see is glitter and sparkle it is incredible and I think the impact of those royal diamonds just sort of ricochet around the world and I think they they sparked huge diamond trends in in other places you know in America with Harry Winston and all saw the impact of that and just that in combination with Hartnell's dress which itself is this tremendously sort of encrusted glittering incredible piece of design and I think he by well actually at the Queen's own suggestion by including not just the emblems of the United Kingdom but also um, the emblems of the nations of which the Queen was head of state and sovereign at that time obviously some of those have changed in the intervening years it gave this just this incredible liveliness to the iconography of the of the dress which is 
just, you know, incredible. And it's so, everything still looks so fresh today, even after all this time. And the Queen decided that those should include coloured threads. So, you know, wattle is yellow and, you know, the maple leaves are green and, and there's, you know, pinks and things in the prettier and so on. So there's, there's this sort of freshness to it all. But as you say, in combination with the jewels, it was such a spectacle. How's it stored? How is it kept so fresh? It has its own dedicated proper conservation box and it's very mm. carefully looked after. And must be heavy. It is heavy. And actually Hartnell talk, talks at length about how his the head of the uh, seamstress's workroom in his in his couture house had to really consider with all that amazing embroidery encrusted over the dress how would it behave when it was being worn and how would that all be supported so that the dress would keep its shape during that three and a half hour ceremony at Westminster Abbey and um, the seamstress head of the workroom um, uh, incorporated quite a lot of structure under the dress so there's sort of horsehair um, crinoline um, supports under particularly under uh, sort of around the hip and that gives the dress that beautiful shape. And I think it was Cecil Beaton who described um, the Queen processing down the Abbey with the dress gently swaying, you know, to and fro as she as she moved along the aisle. And, you know, as you say, that sort of glittering spectacle altogether is quite remarkable. I spoke to Anne Glen Connor, who served as Maid of Honour at the coronation. And she said... On getting to the Abbey, there were two things she really noticed. that The Queen had to stand on a mark on the where they began, and she walked much quicker than the Duchess of Norfolk, who they've been following in rehearsal. <laughs> so they had to sort of quicken their step, and she said all she noticed was row upon row upon row of tiaras. Yes, I can imagine. And then I think that the, the, the amazing thing is that the sort of wearing the tiara and then having to put the coronet on as well at the moment of crowning is so much so much going on, so much to remember. And, you know, the, the thought of all the, you know, guests having been there for so many hours before the three and a half hour ceremony actually started. I mean, it must have been quite mm. overwhelming. Um, but we had the great opportunity, actually, back in 2013 for the 60th anniversary of, of the Queen's coronation. And I was able to reassemble all the maids of honour, um, yeah, who were, of course, still all alive at that point. And, and we took a photograph exactly in the position where Beaton had taken his official portraits and obviously uh, unfortunately on that occasion without um, the Queen but it was just so lovely to hear all their stories, all their stories. so fascinating. Incredible and apparently Cecil Beaton put sandwiches in his top hat because he knew he'd be <laughs> hours in the Abbey <laughs> he'd get a bit hungry. <laughs> <laughs> yes I think quite a few had ideas I think there were quite a number of hip flasks and other the sandwiches secreted other, in yes, various places other, uh, <laughs> and it was cold Desperate wasn't measures. it? Yeah it was, it was very was cold. Quite a miserable day. Yes um, and Glenn Connor said they were very cold. Mm. There was still rationing of fabric, and yeah. she said their dresses were very thin. Yes. Well, Hartnell designed the whole lot. He did maids of honour, and of course, Queen Elizabeth, Princess Margaret, Princess Alexandra, you know, the whole family. He created that whole, you know, really integrated design for how that coronation would look, almost, the whole look and feel of it. But yes, the, the maids of honour dresses were quite flimsy. <laughs> And every single aristocrat invited had gone to Garrard to have their tiara cleaned and repaired. And, and I imagine there was a bit of tiara wars across the aisle because probably people hadn't seen their family tiaras for some years. And I imagine them thinking, 
hmm, actually mine is looking pretty good in comparison to <laughs> who's I'm the sure, biggest. <laughs> I'm sure that was going on, yes, tiara envy, yeah, probably, yeah. <laughs> so tell us about the coronation necklace. So that was Queen Victoria's. So that it? was Queen mm. Victoria. So as we, we've talked about the, the Hanoverian stones having to go back, and so Queen Victoria commissioned Garrard's, obviously the crown jewellers, to, to make this necklace, collet necklace, to replace that, that missing jewel because she'd often worn Queen Charlotte's diamond collet necklace. And so this was, you know, essential for her. And the necklace has, um, as you know, a 22 carat diamond pendant suspended from it. Huge. Very large. Yes, yes. So R&S Garrard, yes, 1858. And of course, Queen Victoria was regularly depicted wearing that. She's wearing it in her in the state portrait by Winterhalter. And then the necklace, although we, you know, obviously it's very much Queen Victoria's diamond collet necklace, it has been given this other um, identity, I suppose, by being called the coronation necklace, because as an heirloom jewel, it passed down through um, the different members of the royal family and was worn to the coronation by the Queen, Queen's consort Alexandra, Queen Mary, Queen Elizabeth, and of course, worn by Her Majesty for her own coronation in 1953. Has it not been worn since? That's a really interesting question. I... I think it probably has, probably on state occasions for state banquets and so on. But it it tends to have that quite strong link to the coronation. Mm. And talking about Queen Victoria, I was thinking, you know, when we when we think about her jewellery, we do think about her really setting definitive fashions, you know, her tiaras and wreaths, and of course later on her mourning jewellery, and how she set the tone through aristocratic circles and everyone tried to emulate her. And then, of course, Queen Alexandra with her dog collar necklaces and chokers and the layering of pearls, um, strands, different strands of pearls. I wonder, what do you think has been Queen Elizabeth II's fashion that she's she's set? Obviously, pearls. Pearls, I think so too. Yeah, pearls, I think, I think are just the, that perennial jewel that we always, almost always see the Queen wearing Every, you know, on a daily basis. And I think the brooch has been a, a really mm. perennial feature of the Queen's uh, wearing of jewellery. She does have that style, doesn't she? It's very definite it, yeah. with the brooch. And it's that understated elegance. Yes, it is. And and some of those brooches, of course, are absolutely magnificent and, and very, you know, as I, we were mentioning earlier, they sort of have a meaning. You know, they have this kind of way of communicating with the audience. So if it's something like the diamond wattle brooch given on the Queen's first ever visit to Australia, you know, if she, if the Queen has been, you know, in back to Australia or if she's hosting the Australian premiere or, you know, some sort of occasion associated with that nation, she will wear the brooch. And that communicates a sort of message. It's it's without her really having to say anything. It's sort of a great compliment, isn't it, yeah. to the to the nation she's visiting or Absolutely. the foreign dignitary who is over here. But there's so much about brooches and I cannot tell you. Everyone is now obsessed that anyone wearing a brooch is giving a message, a subliminal message. And they're all um, absolutely convinced that these are political messages. Now, I just don't feel that's the same with the Queen. I think she she uses them thematically, as you've said. It's it's about paying compliments and being incredibly polite. I don't think there's a subliminal message more than that, is there? I don't think so. I think that, 
you know, obviously lots of, um, you know, often things, you know, people read things into and trying to sort of interpret colours and, you know, what do they mean and um, and that kind of thing. And particularly in, the, I think, the more recent decades where the world seems to be so sort of politically charged and there's this instant communication, images pinging all around the place. And I think that that it's overlaid with perhaps other people's interpretations. But I, I completely agree with you. I think it's more... I think it's more subtle than that. I think it's incredibly dignified. And I think it's it's very, you know, meant to be a very um, genuine and, you know, sort of heartfelt gesture of recognition of service of her people and people of other nations of which the Queen is sovereign. I think it's really connected to that. It's sort of reflecting back almost. But I think that, you know, going back to your original question about, you know, what you know, the Queen's sort of in a sense, what's her sort of contribution to the kind of evolution of the fashion of jewellery. I think that those are sort of hallmark pieces, aren't they? The pearls and the brooch for day wear. And as we were saying earlier, you know, a range of wonderful tiaras and necklaces. And and it all, you know, works so well together. And with her colouring. Yeah. With her colouring. Exactly. And the coloured stones, you know, Mm. it's not just Mm. diamonds and pearls. I mean, coloured stones do feature. Mm. Um, Not as much. No, not as much, and I suppose... Oh, it, apart it, from the emeralds, which... Yes, well, the emeralds, which we, some of which we're going to be displaying, absolutely, yes. yeah. So in London, we've got, yes, the wonderful Cambridge emeralds, part of Queen Mary's Delhi Durbar Parur, uh, made in 1911 for the Durbar, which took place in, in Delhi, sort of marking that moment when King George V became, succeeded as King Emperor. What that resulted in was this incredible... Uh, parure of jewellery made by Garrard's and which which actually the king in the end presented Queen Mary as a 44th birthday present which I think is not bad (laughs) (laughs) Um, and so in terms of the the, some of the pieces that will be displayed these will be actually at Buckingham Palace we have the incredible Vladimir tiara uh, which although it's not part of that parure it is hung it can be hung with some of the Cambridge emeralds and the Cambridge emeralds have such a great you know really interesting story having belonged to Queen Mary's grandmother um, Augusta Duchess of Cambridge and then this extraordinary story about them um, being won in a lottery and then what is that story? It's, a, it's, it's a quite it's a complex a story. German lottery yes and then uh, were they really? princess yes they yes were. princess from uh, Prince Francis of Tech so Queen Mary's brother then acquired them and um, Queen Mary then ultimately rather I think sensibly <laughs> um, acquired them from him and of course used them to great effect in this incredible parure and so we have the the beautiful uh, Delhi Durbar necklace which I think is just such such a wonderful design it's very modern and that's the thing when you look at it now it it um, there's nothing traditional about it at all I completely agree with you. I think it's one of the most modern necklaces with that asymmetric offsetting of colour and yeah, seven. Yeah, the Queen was doing asymmetric well, before all these contemporary <laughs> people. <laughs> and I actually, when um, when it was you know properly researched, I, the first time I ever saw that necklace, I thought, well, this has to be Cartier. It just felt like a Cartier jewel, that kind of you know really innovative design, pushing the boundaries of design, and it could almost be mid 20th century or later but it's 1911 and it's 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 so spectacular so so modern and almost it, I, I find that it it obviously designed to be worn uh with that perure but it, it sort of sits by itself you know so beautifully and the incorporation of, of Cullinan 7 
is, you know, obviously gives us that wonderful link to the Cullinan stone, which is just, you know, of mythical I mean, one of the most famous diamonds in the world, the Cullinan. Yeah, yeah. And um, it was, what what was it, 3,000 carats when it was yes, found? Yes, I think to be... So big, the mine owner, Sir Thomas Cullinan, threw it out of the window. He exactly. said, that can't be real, it's bogus, and chucked it away. Exactly. And someone had to run around and pick it up again <laughs> and say, hold on, let's take another look. It's, it's such a great story. Yes, I've, um, 3,106 okay. metric carats, to be precise. I think it's still... As far as I'm aware, I think it's still the largest diamond ever found. I don't think it's been surpassed. And um, as you say, the story is so fantastic. Rejecting it as being a crystal, it couldn't possibly be a diamond. But thank goodness that 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 mine worker (laughs) persisted. I think we have rather a lot to thank him for. And the stone, as you as you know, was was finally presented to Edward VII as a as a birthday present for his 66th birthday. And of course, sent off to ashes of Amsterdam to be cut. And, and we ended up with those nine incredible stones, two, of course, the greater and lesser stars of Africa being part of the crown jewels. And then the, the seven other stones incorporated into, largely actually, into the Delhi Darbar Parole, but other jewels as well. And Cullinan Seven, uh, as, as we were saying, is this, this beautiful marquise cut pendant stone. And hung asymmetrically, so it hangs slightly lower, so you really notice it. You really notice it, and it's offset by that single pendant emerald. And incorporated into the necklace are nine of further of the Cambridge emeralds, and um, those are interspersed with six very large, brilliant cut diamonds. So, I mean, it, it's spectacular on a number of levels I think that necklace is really really stunning. The Queen has also commissioned Burmese ruby tiara from Garrard didn't she? Yes. So would she go with a specific idea of what she wants or would she hand the stones and say come back with a design? I think it's probably a bit of both certainly in in terms of things that have been published so far about some of those jewels and obviously given the archives the the relevant archives we have a you know a vague idea um around some of the stones as to that dialogue but i think it's very much a dialogue and i think if you look back to um for example queen elizabeth so the queen mother's jewels and some of the pieces that she was purchasing and having made for example at cartier there was there was a real dialogue going on there and reuse and repurposing as we were saying earlier of of stones and making things that were absolutely to their requirements. I suppose some of her most modern jewels came from Andrew Grima didn't they? Yes. Her gifts from the Duke of Edinburgh. Yes yes and Grima yes and he oh I absolutely love Andrew Grima. His pieces were just so popular at that time weren't they? I mean he was sort of 60s modernist designer. And the Queen has a beautiful brooch which was given to her by the Duke of Edinburgh from that collection when he was awarded with the Prince Philip um, Prize for Design. Um, I forget the precise year now, but it, I think it was mm. in the 60s, early 60s. And it's that wonderful ruby and gold brooch, which we still quite often see Her Majesty wearing. Looking at the jewels, as I said, they're so ingrained in all of our collective consciousness as part of regal splendour and royalty and the sovereignty. It wouldn't really be possible for anyone in future generations to alter these to suit their own taste and style, do you think? I wouldn't rule it out. I mean, I Mm -hmm. think some of the pieces that are clearly incredibly historic, it's fairly unlikely. And I think looking at 
pieces we were we were discussing earlier from in the Queen's reign, particularly pieces I think given by Queen Mary, you know, who gave wonderful pieces for um, Princess Elizabeth's 18th birthday, and then of course particularly around the time of her 21st birthday, and of course at the time of her her marriage to Prince Philip. Queen Mary gave so many jewels to Princess Elizabeth and suddenly there was this abundance of pieces. But Queen Mary herself was absolutely, had no qualms with altering jewels. And and we were talking earlier about the girls of Great Britain and Ireland tiara, just such a familiar jewel, but it's gone, it's undergone so many different transformations in in its history, mainly orchestrated by Queen Mary. I mean, she had the upper section detached from the the lower bandeau so that it could be worn as a bandeau to suit those sort of very much more fashionable hairstyles in the first decades of the 20th century. It's difficult to predict, I think, what will happen in in the future. But, uh, you know, the Duchess of Cornwall and even, you know, the Duchess of Cambridge wear pieces which the Queen, you know, has loaned them um, regularly and they have remained you know, intact in their original form. So they certainly wear pieces that suit their styles very much. I think the big Delhi Derba tiara looks fantastic on the Duchess of Cornwall. But the lovers not, it's much sort of fresher and more youthful for the Duchess of Cambridge. So they certainly are selecting well. Yes, I think that you're absolutely right. Those those particular pieces seem to suit the the sort of individual personality, you know, very, very well. And talking about Queen Mary, of course, she was a real jewel lover, didn't she? I mean, she just sort of overloaded it. It was complete (laughs) excess of pearls and diamonds and jewels. And and she obviously loved it. So maybe she had a vested interest in shifting them about and moving because she really loved wearing them. Do you think Queen Elizabeth has that same passion for jewellery. You know, one can see that there's this sort of strong parallel in a way between the way that the Queen wears jewels. I mean, obviously, it's not quite the same. It's not quite to the different same. Different era. A different era, and it's, it's, it's not to quite to the same. Um, I don't particularly want to use the word excess because it sounds sort of gratuitous, but literally overload, as you say. Mm. Queen Mary had an absolute, you know, remarkable talent for wearing more jewels than one could ever you know possibly imagine and uh, but just carrying it off and it somehow when one looks at the photographs of her I think you know one just thinks that oh okay that's just completely normal (laughs) that's what I sort of I suppose because I spend a lot of time looking at these kinds of things and I think oh yes no that's Queen Mary and that's absolutely fine I mean there's a wonderful portrait of her I think it was for the first state opening of of George V's reign and the Queen Mary had Cullinan 1 and 2, i.e. the greater and lesser stars of Africa, removed so that she could wear them um, from from the crown jewels. Mm. And she wore them as a brooch and she wore Cullinan 3 and 4 from one of her nine diamond collet necklaces. So... Altogether, I mean, she was she'd almost practically reunited the Cullinan diamonds. She almost diamond. had three thousand <laughs> carats, kind of diamonds I mean, in depth. Yes, <laughs> I mean, the, the sort of that was a, you know that's a particular favourite photograph. Actually, I think it's it shows how jewels can be worn. I also think when I see pictures of her that she looked like she had this wonderful posture. She was very upright. And maybe that was because she had so, you know, she was literally <laughs> kept upright by so many jewels around her neck. Yes. I think Chips Channon has one or two things to say about that actually in his diaries too. So if, if anyone wants to read up, I think he has some very good 
very good words and very amusing words to say about that. But um, going back to that that sort of link between Queen Mary and Princess Elizabeth, I think there you know there was a really strong bond actually between Princess and her grandmother, and I think they you know probably shared this mutual love and interest in jewelry, definitely. And then you have the Queen's insignia of the Order of the Garter. Yes. which that has to be a very important jewel to be shown. Um, where is that being shown? At Buckingham Palace? That will or? be at Windsor Castle, at Windsor because, Castle. of course, it was worn on Coronation Day. And um, so the, the garter collar sits around, uh, obviously, in the usual position, worn uh, for the coronation. That's the absolute sort of tradition. And the robe, the great robe of estate, which will also be on, on display at Windsor, has special fixing so that the collar sits correctly. And the Queen uh, wears her father's garter collar, actually. So it originally belonged to King George VI. And so it's sort of proportionally, it seemed to work, you know, seems to work incredibly well for Her Majesty. Um, and then, of course, the great George, that wonderful jewel. And the Great George is made of, is that enamel? Gold, enamel, diamonds, completely set with diamonds and as well. St George slaying the dragon. That's right, yeah. So the, absolute, so the, the sort of visual absolute emblem yeah. of England. Yes, yes. And there are four of these garter collars, aren't there? Uh, the, well, oh. there, are, there are many in the Royal mm. Collection, but this is the Queen's, this is the one that was worn on Coronation Day, and I think that's what makes it so special. And are there any that haven't been, that are being exhibited that haven't been exhibited before? Yes, there are actually. Um, So we are very lucky um, to have been able to display four relatively new brooches in the Queen's ownership. And these are a series of brooches replicating the emblems of the United Kingdom. So we have thistle, actually daffodil this time, not leek for Mm -hmm. Wales. And, uh, and roses and obviously shamrocks for Northern Ireland. And these are a set of four brooches. They're made by Asprey. And they were um, a diamond jubilee gift to the Queen in 2012 from the Sultan, the then Sultan of Oman, who actually um, died a couple of years ago. They, they are regularly worn by the Queen. Um, she's worn a number of them for you know, races at Ascot and that kind of thing, but they've never been exhibited. So I'm, I'm really excited to be able to show those. Mm. And when you look at the whole collection, Caroline, what, what do you think the role of this jewellery collection is now? What do you think the role of jewellery plays um, for the Queen? Well, it's, a, it's an interesting one. I think it's, it's just so you know, bound up with the history of the monarchy. And the fact that the jewels are worn and appreciated and cared for and have this personal connection to successive generations of the family, I think is really important. And, you know, looking to the future, I'm excited to see how, you know, in subsequent generations, if I'm around long enough, you know, one will see them being worn by different members of the royal family in the future. But I think making that sort of distinction between obviously the crown jewels, which are completely separate, they're part of our, you know, um, patrimony and our, you know, national history and worn on, you know, just these extremely specific occasions. And then we see the personal jewels alongside. I think in that collection, we see just this evolution of royal style, of British, largely British jewellery making. And so I think they seem to embody so much about the history of jewellery in this country. 
Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that with us and for giving us a glimpse into Her Majesty's jewellery box (laughs) (laughs) and what we can go and see as the jubilee year ensues and what we can go and have a look at at Buckingham Palace and Windsor Castle. And of course, we will be putting on Instagram as many of these images as we can. But mostly, thank you very much, Caroline, for sharing it with us. Thank you, Caroline. It's been a real pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes of If Jewels Could Talk, please go to our website, carolwilton.com slash podcasts. And if you like it, share it any way you can. And please subscribe to the podcast feed, which is on any of the usual platforms where you find your podcasts. And we'd love a rating and a comment. You can view all the jewellery we've spoken about at the Platinum Jubilee Exhibitions. The Queen's Coronation Exhibition at Windsor Castle runs from the 7th of July through to September the 26th. The Queen's Accession will be in the state rooms at Buckingham Palace, 22nd July to the 2nd of October. Go on the Royal Collection Trust website, rct.uk, to buy tickets. So thank you for listening. Please join us again in two weeks for the next Jeweled Nugget. We do have another If Jewels Could Talk exclusive for you. I don't believe if you think about it, you could name a silversmith who became a global legend, but I will be talking about one. Viviana Torren Bulof Huber, who was born in 1927, lived a groundbreaking life in every sense of the word. And we will be talking about that with her daughter, the musician Marcia Coleman. So please join us then. Goodbye. If Jewels Could Talk with Carol Wilton is produced by Natasha Cowan, music and editing by Tim Thornton, graphics by Scott Bentley, illustration by Geordie Labanda, and you can find me on Instagram at Carol Wilton. <laughs>